Hey, good morning. Decided to do a sequel to Obiah, which was not too long ago. And then at the men's meeting, somebody reminded me, hey, Wayne, you're, you're speaking on the first day of Advent. I'm like, ooh, Advent, that sounds like a great theme. Death and destruction and all that good stuff. Um, so I had no idea. I was unprepared for Advent. Advent, the Advent season, which we're actually going through now, the way it traditionally is, don't actually do that, Brethren Church, but our other our Christian brothers and sisters out there um, celebrate Christmas, and then prior the four Sundays before are um, our time to remember the birth of Christ. We call that Advent participation birth, and typically, and we did this last family would come up read a scripture for Christ. So, not starting any traditions or anything, but in honor of the Advent, fallen fallen gate my family to come up with reading. Probably you're going to read Luke 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of Andrew, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger. There was no place. My teaching today is the sequel to Obadiah not too long ago. And somehow I am going to get the birth of Christ. The last time we were together, we looked at the Edomites of Obadiah. The timeline on the left goes along with what we covered. We discussed the beginning, their beginnings in Genesis and went on through Kings, pointing out how the Edomites tried to thwart God's plan for their brothers, Israel. In Obadiah, verses 1 through 14 deal with history, and 15 through 21 are the prophecies of the end time. After the fall of Babylon, I mean after the fall of Judah, Babylon betrayed Edom and their alliance, and the country of Edom was no more. Just as Obadiah prophesied, the nation of Israel will rise again, but Edom will not. It seems like the story is over. But there's so much more in between verses 14 and 15. Most Edomites were not killed. Their country was absorbed into Babylon. But some Edomites left, some traveling to the desert of the Negev, just south of where Judah was. Remember these Edomites making do in the desert because they'll be up here. When I thought of doing a sequel to Obadiah, I was thinking Return of the Edomites. That sounds fun. Uh, but then that shows how much I know about Star Wars, because I found out that the Jedi were the good guys. So I renamed this teaching, The Edomite Strike Back. We're now going to look at Edomite activity in the four ages of kingdoms that Daniel described in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. The Gold Age, beginning in 606 B.C., Edom had helped the Babylonians defeat Israel's southern kingdom of Judah. But their joy was short-lived as they were soon swallowed up into the Babylonian kingdom. Now in the Silver Age, beginning in 536 B.C., Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, took over most of the known world. And what is referred to as the Edict of Restoration in Isaiah 45.1, which is actually two edicts, Cyrus allowed some Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and later the city wall. God anointed Cyrus for this incredible task, even referring to him as the anointed one. 
And Cyrus is the only non-Jewish figure in the Bible. I'm moving ahead a little bit to the time of Xerxes or Artaxerxes. We're now at the time of Esther the Queen. We just read Esther over the last few weeks and understand how Haman connived to kill the Jews. Haman the Agite, chief minister of King Ahasuerus, was a descendant of the Malachite King Agag. This is revealed five times in the book of Esther. So who were the Agagites? They were the royal line of the Amalekites. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, also called Edom. So the Amalekites were a tribe of Edom. The Amalekites' hatred of the Jews led to their repeated attempts to destroy God's people, which led to their ultimate doom. Their fate should be a warning to all who would attempt to thwart God's plan or who would hurt God. Remember the Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Haman was an Agagite, an Amalekite, Edomite. Haman connived to have all the Jews in Persia annihilated, but God saved the Jews in Persia. Haman, his son, the rest of the Israel's enemies of the time were all destroyed instead of the Israelites, Esther 9, 5 through 10. This is the last time an Amalekite is mentioned in the Bible. Okay, we enter into the Bronze Age, not the historical secular Bronze Age, but the Bronze Age of Daniel. Edomia, a new Edom. By the early Hellenistic period of Alexander the Great, there existed an administrative unit or even a satrapy called Edomia in the Greek Empire, which included the arid Ersheba Valleys, the southern Shephelah, and the southern Judean hills. Remember those Edomites who fled to the desert. They had established towns and called their area or administrative unit Idumea. The region was first mentioned, Diodorus, description of events that occurred there in the year 312 BC. Furthermore, Idumea is referenced as an administrative unit in papyrus from Cairo recorded in 259 BC. And from further references in 1st Maccabees, and various quotes from Josephus, it is clear that the second century BC, the region south of Beth Shur was known as Idumea and was considered to be separate from Judea until John Hyrcanus I, sometime around 107 BC, took over Edomia. Now, John Hyrcanus I was a Hasmonean or Maccabean leader and Jewish high priest of the second century BC who reigned from 134 BC until his death in 104. In rabbinic literature, he's referred to as John the High Priest. Hyrcanus initiated a military campaign against the Edomians or Edomites. During this campaign, Hyrcanus conquered Adora. Moresha and other Edomian towns, Hyrcanus then instructed, instituted forced conversion on the Edomians to Judaism. This was an unprecedented move for a Judean re ruler. Not only did he force them to become Jews, he also had them all circumcised. In 72 BC, a boy named Herod was born in this Edomian area south of Judea. He was the second son of Antipater, the Idumean, did I say that correct? Antipater, a high-ranking official from the city of Petra in what is now Jordan. 
Herod's father, by descent, was an Edomite, whose ancestors had been forced to convert to Judaism. Now we enter the Iron Age, or Roman period. Now we come to the Iron Kingdom, or Roman Empire. I won't go into all the scenarios that played out to put Herod as king of the Jews, but let's just say his father, Antipater the Idumean, was quite a politician and diplomat and good at aligning himself with the correct side of infighting Roman factions. Herod I, or Herod the Great, ruled 37 to 4 BC. Herod may have been called the Great because of his massive taxation and subsequent building projects, such as rebuilding the Jewish temple, the construction of his own elaborate palace, water duct cities, and scores of other civil improvements. But he was no empire leader. He was basically a client king or governor who answered to Rome, and he had turned his back on the Jews. Herod was intensely paranoid of others wanting to take his power. He murdered his first wife, Mariamne, her grandfather, Hyrcanus, her brother, Aristobulus, and several of his own children with her. This is the first of the Herods in the New Testament, and he shows up in Matthew chapter 2. I'd like to ask David to read Matthew 2, 1 through 23. Thank you, David. When the Magi came to inquire where the newborn king of the Jews was born, Herod tried to trick the wise men by asking them where the baby could be found so that he could worship him too. Realizing that he had been tricked when the Magi did not return, Herod ordered the killing of all the male babies in Bethlehem. But he was unsuccessful in killing the Christ child. When Herod one died, his kingdom was divided among three of his surviving sons. This division had to be approved by Rome. It was Archelaus. Sometimes I hear it pronounced Archelaus, but Archelaus, Herod Antipas. Aristobulus was dead. That's why he's in parentheses there. He was one of the several children from Mariamne that he killed. And Philip. So those Three living ones received parts of his kingdom. Now, this had to be approved by Rome, and for the time, Rome gave that approval. So, Herod Archelaus ruled 4 BC to 6 AD. He received one half of his father's territory the area surrounding and near Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Herod Archelaus like his father, was, a, was ruthless to the Jews, and he traveled to Rome to receive confirmation of the kingdom, which Augustus granted, though without the title of king, despite being opposed by his brother, Herod Antipas, and a Jewish delegation. So brother, Herod, who had the northern, uh, the other Herod, Antipas, who, had, who got a piece of the northern kingdom, along with the Jewish delegation, went to Rome and said, don't let this guy be our king. So this event may form the background to Jesus' parable of the nobleman who went to a far country to receive a kingdom in Luke 19. During the time 
for Jesus and his family to return to Egypt, it was this Herod, Archelaus, that was ruling the area, including Jerusalem, as well as Bethlehem, from which the family had fled. Joseph was warmed in a dream to go to the district of Galilee, and he settled with Mary and Jesus in Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee, which was at, under the control of Herod Antipas. So Herod Archelaus was deposed in 6 AD, less than 10 years into his reign, which is, uh, which, after which Judea and Samaria were governed by procurators or governors from, from Rome. And that's why Pontius Pilate was the man in charge at Jesus' crucifixion rather than one of the Herods. So although this Herod was deposed and Rome took over that area, the other Herods still ruled kingdoms or mini-kingdoms around what used to be. Because it always confused me. When I read the Bible, it's Herod, 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 Herod. It's what Herod and where and why are Herods and governors you know, it makes sense now that Herod the Great had all of that area, but then when it was divided in his three sons, this is the first son that pretty much lost his kingdom and Rome came in and sent a governor. But the other Herods are still around in the kingdoms around. So Herod Archelaus' brother, Herod Antipas, ruled 4 BC to 39 A.D., of another region of the father of Herod the Great's kingdom. Antipas received a quarter of his father's territory, and that was Galilee and Perea. He was a great builder like his father and built the city of Tiberias in A.D. 22. Jesus called him the fox in Luke 13, 32. Herod Antipas divorced his first wife and married Herodias, the wife of one of his half-brothers, another Philip, not listed here, who was yet another Herod. Antipas was rebuked by John the Baptist for this and other things, evil things as well, in Matthew 14, 3, Mark 6, 17, and Luke 3, 19. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist's head when Herodias daughter Salome, Salome danced at Herod's birthday and asked for John's head. Herod Antipas thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, in Matthew 14, and he kept trying to see Jesus, Luke 9. And this is the Herod that Jesus warned his disciples to be aware of the leaven, Herod, in Mark 8.15. Now later, Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to see this Herod as part of Jesus' trial, since this Herod, who, ru who ruled Galilee, was visiting Jerusalem at the time, and because Jesus was a Galilean, um, Jesus stood trial before Herod. But Jesus would not speak to him. So Herod mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. Although Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, 
he allowed the Jewish leaders to convince him that Jesus posed a threat to his power. Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, and Pilate and Herod Antipas became friends that day. Luke 23, 7-15. So this is another thing that always had me wondering why Jesus went back and forth here and there. Why Pontius Pilate, and then why, where does this King Herod come in again? And well, now I understand that this King Herod was Herod Antipas, who ruled the small northern kingdom of, of Galilee, not Judea, where this trial was happening. But it just happened that he was in town. So Pilate said, hey, you're a Galilean king. Jesus is a Galilean. You look at him. So now it makes sense to me. Okay. The early church held Herod partly responsible for Jesus' death with Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel in Acts 4.27. Herod Antipas reigned 4 BC until AD 39 when he was banished by Caligula. This one I don't have too much bad to say about, and that was Philip the Tetrarch. These three were Tetrarchs, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And what that originally means was Tetrarch was like a quarter of. It meant you're going to get a small kingdom. Well, Archelaus got double share. He got a half of Herod the Great. And Antipas and Philip each got a quarter of the, and they were called Tetrarchs. So this was Philip the Tetrarch. Now, this Philip the Tetrarch was not the other Philip of Herod that um, lost his wife to Antipas. So sometimes those two will get confused because evidently Herod the Great had two sons named Philip through different wives. Okay, so this Philip, there's not much bad to say, and he's mentioned kind of once in the Bible. Another son of Herod the Great, Herod Philip the Tetrarch, ruled 4 BC to 34 AD. He inherited the remaining quarter of his father's territory. That's the north and east of Galilee, mostly ruled over Syrians and Greeks. And Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Uduria and Hecantitus, was mentioned in Luke 3, 1, and he had a peaceful rule of 37 years. Now, one of Herod's, the great's grandsons, Herod Agrippa I, ruled A.D. 37 through 44. Okay, Agrippa was the nephew of Herodias, Herod Antipas's unlawful wife. Eventually, Agrippa ended up ruling over even more territory than his grandfather, Herod the Great. We read about this Herod in Acts 12, 1 through 23. So if I have my wonderful reader come up here, there are two points on Herod there. That particular Herod, uh, that was Herod Agrippa. But Herod Agrippa I had the Apostle James killed the brother of the Apostle John. When Agrippa saw that killing James pleased the Jewish leaders, 
He had Peter arrested, but God sent an angel who released Peter from prison. The book of Acts retells that this Herod did not give God the glory when referred to as a god by the people of Tyre and Sidon and was struck by an angel and eaten by worms. Score two more for God as this Herod could not hold Peter down and he was struck by an angel. Brings us to Herod Agrippa II. Born 27 AD, the son of Agrippa I. He was 17 years old when his father died. He reigned over the northern section east of the Jordan. This was Philip's territory from A.D. 49 to the Jewish revolt in A.D. 60 when he sided with the Romans after failing to persuade the Jews not to revolt. He fought alongside Vespasian against the Jewish revolutionaries and went to Rome after the fall of Jerusalem. Kind of a summary of his life, going back a little. Among other sins, he married his sister, Berniki, we call her Bernice. That one I have right, actually. His sister, Berniki. And together they encountered Paul. So we're going to read um, a selection from Acts 25 and 26 describing that encounter. So Agrippa II visited Festus, the governor, with Berniki and asked to hear Paul when Festus told him about Paul. Paul made his defense before Agrippa, indicating that Agrippa was familiar with the facts about Jesus. King Agrippa, he called him, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. He told Festus that Paul could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa II died in Rome around A.D. 100, having done nothing to set Paul free. Seemingly, the Herods ran away with the ball, but God remained in control. So that concludes the Herodian dynasty and the end of the Edomite rule over the Jews. And now, in the kingdom of iron clay, we wait for the end times and the prophecies of Obadiah. Taking us back to Obadiah here. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. All nations that act like Edom will face God's judgment. Obadiah says in verse 21, For the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. I looked at many commentaries on that very last line of Obadiah 21. I found one very powerful that I liked, and I was going to try to cut it down and make it work, um, but I decided it's so good I don't need to cut anything down. So it's kind of long here. This comes from uh, knowingjesus.com. It's a commentary on just verse 21 of Obadiah. Obadiah identifies God's wonderful plan of redemption for the oppressed nation of Israel. He speaks of God's gracious blessing on believing Jews, which will be finalized with the establishment of the kingdom of God and the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom of 
will be the Lord's. The message from Obadiah is a thumbnail sketch of all the prophetic writings in the Old Testament scripture, which outline God's wrath against a Christ-rejecting sinful world. He gives a profile of the crimes of Edom and pinpoints their destruction, which will take place on the Mount of Esau. He uses Edom and Esau as pictures of his judgment on all the ungodly Gentile nations of the world and on those who reject God's word and abuse his people. This powerful, punchy message indicates what will happen to all God's enemies globally. A day is coming when Israel will be saved. God's people will be fully restored to their promised land, and Christ will be enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords upon Mount Zion's holy hill. What can we take away from the Herodians? We are to be more like the wise men than the Herodians. One, we should not put on a show. Herod was the first, was trying to please Rome, but was also trying to convince the Jews that he was a Jew, like them. He may have scored a few points with the Jewish leaders by rebuilding the temple, but he also built his own palace bigger and higher than the one for God. He was a Jew in name only and just trying to fake it. Let us be careful in our worship to have our hearts in the right place. We're entering a season of remembering the birth of Christ between all the trees and decorations and presents and parties and travelings and gatherings, we must remember the miracle of how God has given us a new eternal life with him. Two, surrender the throne to Jesus. Herod I was obviously not interested in sharing his throne with anyone, not even God. Let us decide daily to give Jesus, our Redeemer, the best of all we have. So God so loved the world that he gave his Son that anyone who surrenders their life to Jesus will gain eternal life. Three, our efforts should be in God's will, not to thwart it. Like Mordecai advised Esther, urging her to take upon the stance for God's cause, and I paraphrase, if you do not do this, you will perish, but God will use someone else. We need to remember that if we are not in God's will, we are in his way. That's all I have for Obadiah. We're done. Thank you. Um, God, thank you for this time together with our brothers and sisters in this first day of Advent. We remember your birth and we pray for your blessings to us as your children and we thank you for sending your Redeemer to save us. In Christ's name.